Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine but aren't to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Lily CBD. Today's guest is someone who I met a few months ago through a chronic illness Facebook group for writers. Sonali Gupta has a compelling story about how she's transitioned her life from the U.S. to India, knowing it was the best thing for her health. Welcome, Sonali. Hi. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here and to talk about you and your life and your health. So if you can just give us a little overview about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. So I'm from New Jersey originally, and right now Harper and I are speaking as I am in Mumbai. I've been living here for the last four years, but I have been coming back and forth since 2008, which was when I was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, specifically limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So I travel back and forth. I've been working on my writing and putting together book proposals. So uh, yeah, that kind of sums me up, I guess, to present day. You were diagnosed with limb girdle muscular dystrophy when you were a senior at NYU. Can you talk a bit about your symptoms and what led to that diagnosis? Yeah, so I was diagnosed in late 2007, actually, but I was officially diagnosed, I think, in 2008. But I was, you know, going to college in New York, walking around. It's a pedestrian city. So you're just walking, taking the subway. And I was doing all of those things, but I had some falls and they were kind of, you know, random. I noticed that I was almost pretty much pulling myself out of the subway stairs and I did have a lot of weakness and there were these unexplainable sort of things. And I noticed that I used to go to the gym in Union Square and I had a a trainer there and she pointed out to me that I couldn't raise my arms overhead without any weights. I couldn't do that simple motion. So I never actually noticed that for myself, although I think I was compensating in ways to do my hair, do my makeup and, you know, whatever other sort of overhead activities or above the chest level activities, you know, that required some of those back muscles and scapular muscles. I was compensating already and kind of just hadn't noticed that I was doing that and and sort of chalked it up to, you know, me, my personality being a little quirky or something like that. Was it the same thing with the falls? I mean, did you think anything of them? I thought that maybe perhaps it was just because I was clumsy. Maybe it's because I was a little bit overweight or like, you know, I had a little extra weight on me or I was, I always sort of found, I mean, for the most part reasons to dismiss it or just kind of excuse it in a way. I thought in the past we'd said that when I had gotten um, x-rays or like MRIs, I did have some tendonitis in one of my ankles. So I thought maybe it was attributed to that, like just weak ankles. I mean, I never thought, truly that there was something else, but probably internally, I knew that there was something wrong because I was exercising a lot. I couldn't really lose weight traditionally, and I didn't understand why. So there was something going on. It just, we couldn't really put our finger on it, my parents and I. So So the interesting thing is, is that both of your parents and your sister are both doctors. So when you approached it with them, 
did they have any sort of sense of what the condition might be or what that first idea would be to approach it with a doctor outside of the family? Well, I think once I sort of broached the topic to my dad about my uh, scapular weakness when I had mentioned what the trainer pointed out to me, then I think that's when my father got concerned and we looked into it a little bit more. And when I was younger, actually, when I was about 10, I think, we did get a, a biopsy. They showed in my reports, and it was actually for a a stomach issue. It wasn't related to my muscle issue. I had some stomach issues when I was growing up just with digestion and all of this. So we were getting some reports done at the children's hospital in Pennsylvania. And we noticed that there was like a muscle myopathy. There was some sort of muscle condition because my CPK levels were pretty elevated. So we had a sense of that, but I was able to climb stairs. I was growing up normally. I didn't have any issues when I was growing up. So it didn't seem like there was anything to be concerned about, but I really don't know myself, honestly. So interesting. And so you address it with your parents and what happens from there? And then we, you know, participate in a genetic counseling study. And I think that was in uh, Colorado, I believe. And so that was, again, my senior year of college. And I was quite nervous about what was going to happen. But I also had no idea what was happening because I felt quite normal myself. There was some sort of underlying uh, something going on inside of my body. So we participate, my parents and I, in this study. They get genetically tested and we find out that there is a gene called the Calpain 3 gene that my parents are both carriers of, which they didn't know. And then it had been passed on to me. And so the type specifically that I had was limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2A, which is also called calpinopathy. And what did you learn in getting that information? And how did it feel getting that diagnosis? At the time, I mean, I was a little bit relieved, to be honest, but also completely naive to what that even meant. I think when you're a senior in college, I think you've just got your career. I mean, at least I did on my mind. And I was really looking forward to dive into that world. And it sort of felt like this diagnosis wasn't really going to make that possible for me. Because I knew now with this new information, my parents, especially being doctors and parents, of course, were going to be more protective of me, and you know, more concerned about where I was going and how I was moving around and things. So, but as a college student, I really didn't put too much weight into it because I was so focused. I worked in the music industry when I was in college. So I had job offers at various labels when I was graduating. And I was really looking forward to just doing that and like getting to really experience what I had worked hard all throughout college for. And like I said, there was a mixture of relief in that too, just knowing that there was something there that wasn't, uh, being addressed. And I, no matter what I was doing for my body, whether it was working out or taking care of myself health-wise in other ways, like I wasn't able to rectify what was going on with this weakness or these falls. And there was a bigger explanation other than, you know, whatever I was giving reasons to for it. I think that there's a lot of people who have been on the podcast previously, as well as our listeners who really can relate to that concept of just being happy to have a definition and to have an answer and reason for how and why this is this way. Because you're walking around and you're like, am I like a klutz? Or like, is there actually something here and a reason behind this? And so do you feel that it set you back in your career in those early days? Yeah, absolutely. To your point of just like 
feeling like a klutz because I think that's exactly how I felt. I just couldn't explain why I was slipping, why I was falling and, and why I couldn't get up on my own, I think was the other thing too. And like I said, I think it was just something that I labeled as my own personality trait and I took on, but I knew that that wasn't the case, you know, that there was like something going on, but it did delay my career plans. And I think there was this, and we've spoke about this, you know, I didn't get to really fulfill that desire of working in the music industry in that traditional way that I had really hoped and worked for throughout college to get to. So, but there was something that was missing a little bit. I was really excited about that. But you know what? On the other hand, it did bring me to India, you know, and that's part of the reason I live here. You know, I I moved here for my health. But the initial trip to India was right after I had graduated. And I don't think that I would be living in India had I not gotten that diagnosis. So can you explain a little bit more about that? Like what made you make that transition? What was it about India that felt more aligned with the lifestyle you wanted to live? So at that time, I don't think it was so much the lifestyle I was really looking for. I was kind of following my father to where he was bringing me to various places in India. And I'm actually writing about this for my book. The journey that I took with my dad was really interesting. And it was more based out of faith and some desperation and also sort of just kind of just going with it, honestly. Like, I don't think we really had much of a plan. I think my father had some kind of plan in action, but a lot of it was related to going on these sort of spiritual or religious sort of places to visit spiritual and religious leaders that my father wanted to consult about what was happening with me. So that was sort of the beginning half of our trip was that. And then it became looking for an alternative treatment for myself, more holistic, possibly homeopathy, Ayurveda. Uh, So I ended up meeting a doctor who I did get some Ayurvedic treatment with for about 10 months. And um, I lived in Pune from 2008 to 2009. And I got Ayurvedic treatment with them. So that was sort of the premise, I guess, of our trip and coming here initially was my health. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So with Ayurveda, I know what it is, but for the listeners who don't, can you explain a little bit more about it? So Ayurveda, and don't quote me on this, is a Eastern method of treating one's body in a holistic manner that doesn't involve drugs, uh, Western medicine and allopathy. It's based off doshas, you know, they call them, which is kind of like energies, I guess, in a way. And there are three types or is there four types? You know, there's vata, pitta, kapha, and I might be missing one, but these are called doshas, D-O-S-H-A-S, doshas. And everybody has one that they lean towards. I think they're all based off of elements of earth, water, fire, and air. So based off of what your makeup is, I think an Ayurvedic doctor sort of reads that where you sort of fall on the line of the doshas, where your energy is at, and then they create a plan which involves nutrition and herbal supplements. And it also involves diet and they'll give you recommendations on what you can eat and what you can. And sometimes they'll do cleanses where, you know, you drink rice water for certain amount of days and they sort of cleanse your system with all these other tonics and things like that, that they'll put together. And it also involves some level of exercise. So I think yoga and Ayurveda do go hand in hand if you're really talking about the true definition and the scientific way of looking at it. But essentially it is 
a way of addressing what's going on with your body, but in a more elemental, natural way. You did a really good job at explaining that. And to confirm, it is three of them. And we'll be sure to include in the show notes a link to something like Ayurveda.com for people to learn more. There are certainly people in New York and in the U.S. who study this and practice this and teach this. So if you're interested in that more, there are certainly things out there. So in doing that exploration with your dad, was it something that you believed in and were open to, or were you just following his path and trusting him? That's a good question. (laughs) I've asked myself that a few times, actually, in the process of, you know, what I'm writing, but I think I just kind of had to trust him. I didn't know what I was doing, really. And I'm not sure entirely. I mean, I have faith in my father, but I think he was operating from, um, and I think this is a perspective I appreciated later on from a parent's point of view, you know, from a place of helplessness, potentially desperation of just wanting to do something, you know, and feeling like he couldn't really help me, you know, they couldn't really help me, my parents. And there was only so much that they could do. And I'm sure there was a lot of guilt attached to that as well. But I think my father just really wanted to do something. And this was his way of doing it was helping me come to India. And because we are of Indian origin, you know, although I was born in New York and raised in New Jersey and all of that, I didn't really have too much of a cultural attachment to India. So in a sense, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was sort of just following you know, ahead and told myself that I was going to give myself a career break and revisit that when I could, because with this new information, it felt a little tricky to be able to throw myself into an industry like media or entertainment and know what I knew at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because in episode one, as well as episode 27, when I interviewed my mom and I did the solo episode, I talked about that experience of being younger and sort of as much as I opted into things or said, no, I'm not doing this. My mom did the research on my behalf because in my case, I wanted to ignore what was going on and pretend that it wasn't happening at that time. And so when my mom ran a holistic healthcare center, and I don't know if I've told you this before. Yeah. When I was in high school, she ran a holistic healthcare center. And so I saw tons and tons of practitioners of all different backgrounds, Ayurveda and all these like super out there things. And I did it, but I wasn't really invested in it or willing to give my all in hopes that things would change. And so that's where it's always interesting to hear from people what their perspectives are of like, I don't want anything to do with this or fine mom, I'll do it. Or actually this seems really legit. Let me explore it. So it's just interesting to hear, you know, people's perspective on that. Do you still do? I mean, I know we briefly talked about acupuncture. So have you incorporated any of those holistic things that you did or other things now for yourself? Good question. I have been a huge advocate and person who gets acupuncture regularly. It is one of my favorite things ever. And there are other things that I sort of explore and dabble. I'm very intrigued by Ayurveda and the diet that is affiliated with that, although I haven't explored it as much as I quote unquote should. But I think it's really interesting stuff. And I'm always intrigued by how and if it works for people and figuring out, you know, what your lifestyle can look like as it incorporates things like that. I mean, I also love acupuncture. I think it's something that does take a long time to show 
its benefits, you can get like immediate results. I found that here. I only did acupuncture when I was in India, but I stopped going because it was more technical issues just because of the traffic and it was long distance. But that's good to know that you found somebody that works for you because I think that's the key with any of these treatments, whether it's physical therapy or acupuncture or anything, whether it's holistic or not, I think it's about finding the right person for you. Absolutely agree with you. Over the last year or so, I found someone in New York that I loved and I was going to her once a week. And then when I was in Tel Aviv for about six weeks, I have someone amazing there also. And then ever since quarantine, I haven't been getting treatment. And in the last few days, I've really been thinking like, I know that I don't really want to be in such close quarters with people, but I just contacted someone to reach out and see if there's a way to do it safely because it really is something that I see a difference. And to your point, it's not a one-off thing. It's not like get a manicure and it lasts a while. It's like every week you got to keep up with this. And I really do see the difference in how I feel from it. So I think it's, you know, with all of this stuff, it's all about personal preference, what people are willing to try and explore and stick with. Because I think with all of it, yoga, meditation, acupuncture, massage, physical therapy, the list goes on you have to keep up with it. And you can't expect that one session is going to solve all your problems. Yeah, I am missing all of that in this whole lockdown. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally with you. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Lily CBD. Lily CBD is organically grown and an everyday essential to help you feel alive. Russell Marcus was a guest on episode 51 of the show and spoke about the value that CBD had on his mom's health while managing chronic pain. Over the last year, I've been regularly using Lily CBD at night, shortly before I go to bed to calm my nerves, and I see that it really helps relax me. I even love the taste. Head to lilycbd.com and use code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. That's lilycbd.com, code MADEVISIBLE, one word, at checkout for 15% off. Now, back to the show. So talk to me a little bit about what your symptoms are these days and how you manage them. What does that look like? So since I was diagnosed, I have more trouble climbing stairs, a lot more. I mean, even a step or two, I do require support for that. And I have trouble walking longer distances. Symptomatically, I mean, I guess I could just say it's overall muscle weakness. And the weakness is mostly in my hip girdle and my shoulder girdle. And that means that I have trouble sitting and standing and climbing steps. So anything that really involves your hips, your hip flexors, and overhead activities. So anything like tying my hair, washing my hair, or reaching for things. But you find your ways around them. And, you know, whether they're grabbers and reachers, there's so much equipment available now, and there's so many things to sort of make your life easier when you do have limitations. So I think that's something to be appreciative of, that, you know, there's just a lot of options for people now. I just require support. I mean, to walk around, I usually hold on to someone's hand. I'm pretty aware of just my surroundings and making sure that I'm not going to slip on something. And it's more more so that than other things. But I do get pain. I do get 
stiffness, you know, especially during this whole lockdown, I haven't been able to do, like you said, any of my body stuff. And I felt more symptoms, I guess, in the last three months than I normally do just because of the lack of physical exercise or physio or massages or swimming. The pool has always been amazing for me. So yeah, mostly muscle weakness. And I would say like some rigidity, I guess, in the body and some occasional pain, I think if I overdo it, which I do sometimes do. So So you mentioned this concept of grabbers, which I am trying to visualize what that looks like, but I more so want to understand how did you learn about those things? Did you find communities online or in India of people going through the same sort of thing and learning from them and their experiences? Like, how did you do that research? So the grabber actually I bought from America. And when I lived in South Florida in 2015, I found that they had, and I'm just not, I'm not sure if it's just because of the community of people that live there who are elderly, you know, they have so many great medical supply stores there, like a lot of great medical supply stores in South Florida. And I found some great stuff. And when I was getting physical therapy, my physical therapist had recommended a few places to me and I went there and that's kind of how I found it. It was usually through recommendations. I wasn't really tapped into the network, I would say online of groups and things like that on Facebook at that point in time. I did register after I found out I was diagnosed with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And I had gone to a couple of support groups that were in my area in New Jersey. And I mean, I think it's important to kind of keep yourself in the know of what's going on when it comes to some of these things. And I think I did whatever I could at that time and whatever felt appropriate to me. But I wasn't really if I'm being honest, like trying to really connect too much to and lean on the disabled community or the people with illness community, I think at that time, because I was, you know, very early in my 20s. And I think I was really in my own space of denial and just like not wanting to accept what was happening to me at that point, too. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely want to make sure we address that. But you do require live in help. So can you talk a little bit about now that you're back in India for the last four years with some stints in the US, you have someone who lives with you. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that decision and what that's meant for your life? Yeah, so I have been having live in hell for the last three years, I want to say. It's been great. I think it was not something I was open to at all in the beginning. My mother had come to visit me and I think she saw how I was sort of struggling after I had part-time help. And the help that they would normally do when I had hired someone was normally just the housework. And they would help me with my activities of daily living. So getting ready, getting dressed and helping me, you know, go to physical therapy and helping me meaning just holding my hand, just making sure I had some support and If there were any inclines, you know, those get a little slow for me. So things like that. And, you know, like cooking. But I think my mom did see how I was struggling in the evenings after they had left or, you know, the woman who was helping me had left. And I did sort of take my own time to warm up to the idea of love and help. I didn't love it. But now, you know, it's been three years and I really appreciate love and help a lot. And I do know when to sort of ask for help and utilize, you know, the person who I have living with me and working for me. And also when I need to and what I'd like to do things on my own, because I think it's important to strike that balance if you can, you know, if you're physically able to. 
I love that you say that because I think that, again, is something that many people can relate to. It is hard to ask for help, but you're in a situation where you recognize how important it is and yet how important it is for you to have that freedom to know that you don't rely entirely on somebody else's support. Yeah, it didn't come to me very easily. And it was something that I took my own time and I'm still sort of figuring that out. I don't think I'll completely, you know, have one feeling about being dependent on somebody. You know, I think that that's sort of a constant changing thing as my needs change too, you know, because they're at a different place now than they were when I was initially diagnosed, where I was able to sort of do a lot more independently. But I think when I look back on it, I could have used a lot more help as well. And that might have helped my life if I was able to sort of accept some of the things that were going on with me. But you know, we all have our timeline for these things. And Yeah, there's no linear path for how this stuff looks. It's figuring out what works for you at what period of time, when you're willing to make a change or, you know, allow yourself to struggle and be okay with it. And then realize that all of a sudden, like, I've had enough, I want support. Yeah. And as you know, I spent 27 years not addressing what I was going through. And here I am hosting a podcast talking about it every day. So I think, you know, everyone goes through this in different phases and there's absolutely no one right way through that all. Yeah, definitely not. And I think that for me, it was a big realization and it's still sort of a work in progress, but uh, understanding that in order to be independent and self-sufficient in my own ways that are important to me and what those things that are important to me that I don't necessarily want to give up why that dependency allows me to be independent, you know, like relying on them allows me to sort of have enough energy saved up to do something else that's really important for me. And that really matters to me on my own, you know, it's a journey, as they say. (laughs) Yes, totally. (laughs) So last year, you wrote a piece about the inaccessibility of Mumbai, and navigating it with a cane or a wheelchair or any sense of disability. And can you talk a little bit about how that makes socializing hard and can lead to isolation? Yeah. So that piece that I wrote about was specifically India, but I do think about New York because that's also a different environment and I face different challenges there than I do in India. But in the Mumbai space, what's interesting is that even though things are not very accessible structurally, there are a lot of people that are willing to help you you know, figure it out. And I think if you take on that attitude and you sort of appreciate the people that are willing to help you, whether it's like, I've been carried up in chairs many times here. I've been carried by many people just so that I could get in experience, whatever it is that I wanted to experience out socially and, you know, relied on the goodness of other people that wanted to get me in there too, you know? So I think it's kind of interesting that they may not physically be able to like, you know, be accessible to you, but in other ways it is because of the community of people here. That's not everywhere, but I found that overall, there's like that very helping nature. It's really helped me stay in the city too, in a lot of ways, as difficult as it can to be living here also. uh, But I do think that there are people that are willing to help you if they recognize that there is a true need in that sense. I love hearing that. That's so, so huge. So one of the things that I love is that you have taken the time to write about your health and your experience through these years of going through these challenges of living with muscular dystrophy. Can you talk a little bit about when you started to write 
and what your goal is here? So I started writing when I came to India, I think, was really when I started exploring writing because there was just so much going on. This was a new environment, a new place, and it was exciting. I think it was the sense of curiosity, observations of my own health journey and how that was evolving and uh, wanting to sort of document it for myself. So I would do journals and I had notebooks full of stuff and told myself I'm going to do something with this one day. And then I sort of just got in touch with people locally in Mumbai who I, you know, made friends with and uh, contacts here and started just writing about different things. I did a piece on graffiti, street art and stuff like that, because that I found really compelling and interesting here. So anything that I found interesting, I would try to kind of pitch it out to people. I wasn't getting paid at that time. It was just for, you know, my own sort of enjoyment and being able to see myself published, I guess, on some level. But I didn't write too much about my health until I think about 2016, when I did move to India more full time. And that was a different type of writing. But the earlier stuff was more just experimental. And I was freelancing for TV Asia, and I would do more listicles and news articles and things like that for them. And I've always enjoyed writing and sort of being able to pen my thoughts down and share it with other people and storytell. And it's been something that I've always enjoyed, but I never really thought about it as a profession until you know, I actually did it and I felt good about it. It's interesting because as I've gotten to know you over the last few months and full disclosure, I am Sonali's business coach. We've been working together in developing her career as a freelance writer and getting all the business stuff handled and figuring out what this all looks like. We've had many conversations about not wanting to be defined as a disability writer. And you acknowledge the piece that you wrote about graffiti and you've written other pieces that have absolutely nothing to do with your health. And I know that you've talked about the interest in writing about other topics. Can you talk a little bit more about why, you know, being defined as a disability writer is not something that you really relate to? Yeah, it's definitely a struggle. And I think I'm still figuring that out for myself. I haven't fully addressed that, but it is the thing I think that's held me back when it comes to my writing because that fear of being um, typecast or pigeonholed. And I'm not sure myself what that's about, but it's something that I'm still exploring. And it's not that I don't want to not talk about my health or, you know, that I don't want to be connected to that community or anything like that. I think it's just that there's only so much I feel that I can say about it to a certain point before I question myself as a writer, maybe, perhaps, you know, I think it's more of an introspective thing. I'm still kind of figuring out, but it's not about the disabled community, I don't think. It's more just, uh, and not wanting to be associated with that. It's more just personally for myself, since this wasn't a condition, I think, that I grew up with. I think that because I was diagnosed when I was 21, that that does attribute to some of my discomfort with what, you know, being typecast with whatever labels or being associated with. And I've talked about this in some of my other pieces was this before and after, you know, where I was this person before my condition and then this person after and sort of straddling those two worlds. I think it was for me a struggle and it's been an ongoing process in terms of just like my own level of where have I accepted you know, what's going on with me. Also, I don't feel like the condition was something that I've lived with my whole life because it wasn't that. It was 
difficult for me to fully say like, this is what I'm about, if that makes any sense. That makes complete sense. And I think the other thing that you didn't acknowledge, which I know is to be true, is that you have interests outside of being someone with a disability. And there are things that you're passionate about and that you love. And so it's figuring out ways to write about those things because those things excite you too. Yeah, and I think it's what it also may be is that when someone finds out something very serious about you, whether it's, I mean, I can't exactly say that equated on the same level, but for example, like a divorce or if uh, someone was in an abusive relationship, for example, or just, you know, something really striking and challenging for someone to deal with. I think that sticks in people's heads, you know, the people kind of remember you for that. And I think for me, a lot of the fear was that that was what I was only going to be remembered for was for having, you know, a disability and having muscular dystrophy. But I don't think that that's necessarily the lens that other people look at me through. Perhaps that was just me, you know, projecting that on other people. But I think that you're totally right. A lot of it is that I had all these interests, music, and I still do, you know, and those are things that I like to talk about and conversations I like to have and things that I'm exploring with my writing. And I want to be able to express that because I found that people like to hear about health. And as much as I may want to share some of these things, it's not the only thing that I like to share. I couldn't agree more. And I love how you said that. I will also give a plug to the article that I recently wrote that I know you read, which is for well and good about, yes, I have an invisible illness, but that's just one part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge thing to remember. And I'm sure so many listeners can relate. It is part of you. And you may want to say it is part of what defines you. But at the same time, there's so many aspects of who you are. So I think that's a great note to end on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about your experience. Where can people learn more about you, connect with you, and read your writing? Twitter is probably the best place. Um, I'm at Sonali Gups, S-O-N-A-L-I-G-U-P-S. I usually post any sort of articles that are published over there or Instagram, same handle. And uh, I'm also in the process of putting together my website. So that's going to be SonaliGuptaWriter.com. Amazing. Thank you, Sonali. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Grisillo for the design.